that you join me in prayer as we begin this morning to look at God's Word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, may we not take our time here lightly. May we not look at it as just something else that we're doing this week. But Lord, may we receive it as a time to meet with you, as a time to hear your Word, as a time to interact with the truth that's found in the Bible. So Lord, we pray this morning for your anointing, for your presence. For your power to rest on us, we pray, Lord, that what we hear will be understood and driven deep into our hearts. So, Lord, we open ourselves to you this morning. We ask you to teach us, to change us, Lord, to make us who you want us to be, both individually and as a church. Lord, we thank you for the truth that's found in your word, the scripture that we can live on, that it's so sufficient for every need in our lives. We don't have to turn anywhere else to find out who we are and who you are and what all that means and how we should live. We thank you that in your word is found the truth of salvation and more the truth about who you are and your plans for us. So God, teach us again this morning something new, something fresh and something, Lord, that will inspire and challenge us all at the same time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm curious what you know about the particular book that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. We're starting a new series this morning. We just wrapped up one on uh, on money and what God has to say about that. And if you need resources based upon that last series, maybe if you missed one or you'd like to catch up a little bit, we make those recordings of each sermon available both on our website. If you go to the resources page, you can either listen online or download that. Maybe uh, listen later on. You can subscribe there to a podcast that will automatically download those to your iPhone or iPod or whatever is your flavor. And we also make those available on CD for those of you that would prefer it that way. And those copies are available in the back as you're going out the door. You look to your left and you'll see a a table there. Um, So if you'd like to catch up, then that's a good way to do that. But this week we're starting a new series based upon the book of Daniel. I don't know how much you know about the book of Daniel, but I would imagine that there are at least two stories and maybe three for some of you that you're very familiar with. These are not trick questions I'm going to ask you, okay? I try not to do that. That's unfair. I I hated it when people did that to me. So I'm just going to ask you, there are at least, I would say, two stories that most everyone in here, if you've maybe been in church, especially if you were in church as a child, you heard these stories over and over and over again. Now, there's one found, and I don't cheat. I hear some of you turn to the pages. You know, All right, we're going to answer it right. Listen, it's not a trick question, I promise. I'm not going to give you a grade. This is just, you all pass, I promise. Everybody's going to walk away happy today because you passed the court. But there are at least two stories that are very familiar. One, I don't turn there, I'm telling you. One is in, y'all are pitiful. I'm you. I used to teach high school, and, and y'all are just as bad as those sophomores that I used to teach. Two stories, one in Daniel chapter 3. Does anybody know the, the, the famous story, Bible story, told to children that's found in Daniel chapter 3? Just call it out if you know what it is. It, somebody said lion's den. Okay, no, nobody wants to be wrong here. Just somebody call it out. What do you got? Lion's den is not it. We're getting to that one. 
Yeah, it's, it's the fiery furnace, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the lion's den story, Daniel and the lion's den, is found over in chapter 6. There's one story in between that you may not realize is found in the book of Daniel in chapter 5, and it's that infamous handwriting on the wall story. Remember that one from maybe when you were a kid? Maybe you've never heard that story. There's this mysterious hand that comes out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall. Daniel's a book that many of you are probably familiar with, even if you didn't know those stories came from the book of Daniel itself. There's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there they are, told by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that they must, along with everybody else, bow down to this great statue that's been set up as a monument to the king and to the, the kingdom of Babylonia. And, and when, the, when all the music is played, there they are all supposed to bow down and worship. And if you know the story... These three guys, at least those three, say no. And they stand there. And the king, I suppose, thinking he's being really gracious, gives them a second chance. Okay, guys, let me tell you, I'm really serious. Understand what's going to happen to you. And he says, if you don't bow down, what's going to happen? You're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so we all see that story from, from Sunday school on the flannel graph and all of that. Your teacher's switching them out, and here's the fiery furnace, and here's all the music and the big statue, and the music plays again, and they refuse to bow down. And they have this moment where they are face-to-face with a king, and they say, Look, king, we want you to know that no matter what happens, we believe our God can take care of us. And in a very powerful, I think one of the more powerful verses in the Scripture They say in chapter 3, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to your statue. And as a result, they are then thrown into the fire. And God saves them, though, from the fire. They have this even if moment. Even if God doesn't come through, I still will serve him. I still will be faithful, even if I can't see God working in my life. We're going to look at that a little bit next week. And you also have the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel was told through a law made by the the ruler of the land, that no one could pray to anyone but the king. Well, Daniel obviously knew the scripture and said, well, I, I, I understand that what's true is that I'm supposed to pray only to God, not to this man. And so Daniel refuses to break his habit of prayer consistently. And as a result, he's thrown into the lion's den. And these hungry lions leave him alone all night long because God protected him. Daniel probably had no idea going into it what would happen. I don't see anywhere there where God revealed to him, look, just don't worry about it in the lion's den. Everything's going to be okay, I promise. He had another moment like that. Those big moments in life where they stood up for what they believed in and, and, and it worked. We'll look at that a little bit next week as well. This week, I want to look at the background. What led up to those moments? Because the truth be told, if you're like me, probably when you were a kid, you had dreams of these big moments in life. Mine centered around being at bat in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs and the bases loaded, my team down by three runs in the seventh game of the World Series. Obviously, I stand before you today because none of that stuff happened, but... But those were my dreams, those big moments in life. And Hank, my son, is the same way. He, he plays ball all the time and makes up his own games and all of that. And ball in a glove, and he's playing. He always plays the Red Sox against the Yankees, and he knows those Yankees better not ever win. And so, so he plays all the time. He's, he's dreaming of those big moments in life. And sometimes those moments are the ones out in, the, in, in maybe the secular world of sports and so on. And 
And yet all of us probably would want to come through in those big spiritual moments of life. When you're face to face with how are you going to live and what are you going to do and who are you going to be. And so we're going to look over the next few weeks at this series called Living Godly in an Ungodly World. Maybe some of you have been exposed to that ungodly world for years. I know as a child, I went to four elementary schools and three different middle schools. Thank God I settled on one high school and one university. And I knew everybody in Jefferson County, Kentucky by the time I got to high school. I'd gone to school with them somewhere. I learned very quickly it's tough to live godly in an ungodly world. So we're going to talk about that. And over the next few weeks, three weeks, we're going to look at three different parts of what it takes to live godly in an ungodly world. And we're going to look because uh, we know it's the source of all we need to determine how to live and to by applying the principles, uh, we'll understand what God wants for us. We're going to look at the Scripture. We're not going to look at psychology and anything like that. We're going to look directly at the Scripture for how we should live godly in an ungodly world. So if you've got your Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Some of you were cheating earlier. You're already there. So if your pages aren't turning, I know you're a cheater. All right? Just kind of shuffle them, make me think. There you go. All right? Daniel chapter 1. We know that the Bible is full of principles that show us how to live. Daniel is no exception. In fact, there are some very powerful principles that we'll see over the next few weeks. As a way of introduction, let's look at the first seven verses, which sort of set the stage for the encounter that I want to talk about this morning. It says in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to serve in the king's courts. Among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them different names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. Now that sort of sets the stage. Understand what's taking place. You see there in the first couple of verses that Jerusalem has been taken over. The Jewish people are now being exiled and deported somewhere else. And specifically, the king asked, give me the best and brightest. Now these guys were young. They were probably somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. We may think of these guys, because of their incredible faith, as being much older than this. But they were teenagers. They were very young, and it says they're, they're teachable, they're impressionable, they're, they're suitable for instruction, it says. And so they're in that stage of life where they can go one way or the other. They're deported to this different country, apart from their families, away from their homeland, and taken to a foreign land in a different world than they grew up in. And so these men are taken there, and the goal by the king Nebuchadnezzar is to brainwash them. 
to change, first of all, their names and what they've been taught and what they will eat and drink, and really to form in them a new identity that is different from how they were raised in Jerusalem. And so these, these guys obviously wind up in a very, very different place. They wanted to change their beliefs. You see there it says that they were to be taught the literature and, and the language of the Chaldeans. Now understand that to learn that meant that these guys would be exposed to not monotheism and the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, but, but polytheism, lots of different gods, the God of this and the God of that. And all of these things would be taught to them in the literature and the language. And also included in that would be magic and sorcery and charms and astrology and all these foreign things that the Bible clearly prohibits. And yet these, this is the world these guys are taken to and forced to live in. Now I want to say to you both to the young people and then to those who are parents and grandparents and friends and neighbors and so on of our young people, Understand that the world of Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do to these teenagers what our world today wants to do to our young people, and that is to brainwash them into believing something different than what the Bible says. It's certainly no secret uh, that our world is not a godly place. If you believe that it is, you are unfortunately, sadly, either naive or mistaken. It is not a godly place in which we live. In fact, Satan has dominion over this world, and I should not, nor should you be surprised when things are evil in this world. God ultimately, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, he ultimately wins, and yet for a time in his sovereignty has allowed Satan influence over this world. And so it is an evil place. So if you feel, young people, parents, grandparents, friends, whomever, a little bit out of place in this world, then you are out of place, and understand that is normal. The Bible says this is not our home. We are passing through. It calls us aliens and strangers in a foreign land. This world is not a godly place, and it wants to. The system of this world wants to brainwash our young people and us as well into believing and thinking the way that the world does. So I ask you, parents, are your kids prepared for that? These, these young men were 14 to 17 years old at a stage of life where they could go one way or the other. You realize that studies show that, that what a person believes and lives by at age 13 really doesn't change a whole lot when they reach adulthood. It's in that teenage, young life that, that decisions are made that will affect the rest of their lives. So parents, I ask you, are your kids prepared for what they experience every day? Because the world that is trying to brainwash them is where they go to school. It's the team they play on. It's the people they interact with. It's the four elementary schools and three middle schools and one high school that I went to trying to brainwash me to believe in the world system and to, to lean away from God. I ask you, are your kids prepared? And you say, well, listen, I bring them to church. Hey, that's great. That's a first step. But that's not preparing them for life in the ungodly world they face. How much biblical instruction do your kids get apart from church? Do you, parents, grandparents, relatives, do you talk about the Scripture with your kids? Or are you relying on the church for all that they'll get? Understand, our kids that are over there right now, the students that will meet on Wednesday night, the college students that we'll have here on Wednesday night, the interactions we have, we have about an hour a week with your kids hour a week. They spend 
a lot more time than that in an ungodly world. And they spend a lot more time than that around you. Parents, don't ever underestimate your influence. What you say, what you don't say, what you do and what you don't do proves that you are the greatest influence in the life of your children, hands down. It's not me, it's not our church, it's you. And so I hope and pray that you are preparing them, not just by bringing them to church, though I applaud that, and I think we should do that, and we'll do the best we can while they're here. But that's not all that there is to it. Are they prepared? As I mentioned before, it's no secret that we live in an ungodly world. I came across an article in the news this week that some of you may have read and maybe you saw on different news stations. And it's about a clothing line for children. And it says, A line of children's clothing called Ooh La La Couture, promoted by a young Disney star, has come under fire for being too adult and has even been likened to adult lingerie by some critics. The Emily Grace Collection is named after 8-year-old Hannah Montana star Emily Grace Reeves, who helps design the line of clothing. According to the official press release announcing the line in September, the design features versatile styles that can be worn with sweet ballerina slippers, casual sneakers, or paired with lace stockings and boots for more of a rock and roll look. The similarity, the article says, of the clothes to adult lingerie is undeniable. Even Perez Hilton, a gossip blogger, if you know anything about this person, you understand this is unique that, they, that he would say this, likened the news of the lines released to the apocalypse, while the Daily Mail called the designs perverse. Promotional materials for the line feature the girls in grown-up looks and poses. In one of Greaves and Cyrus, another person, a young girl that works on this line, the girls are seen surrounding what appears to be a stripper pole, and another shows the children posing in leopard miniskirts that bear a striking resemblance to adult lingerie pieces. And folks, something as subtle as that. You know who that stuff is marketed to? Your children and mine. Now, I'm not trying to say and to be legalistic or anything like that, but understand this world is an ungodly place. And even in something that we might say, well, that sort of innocent has subtle tones trying to hook our children, and particularly I think our young girls, into living a lie. It's no secret that we live in an ungodly world. So what should you do? What do you do when you find yourself? That's where you work. That's where you go to school. Those are the people that you're around. Some of us will do nothing. We'll just exist. We'll just float along and hope that we make it, and we'll just settle on, well, I'm, I'm an okay person. I, I'm okay. I'm pretty nice and good. And some of us will do that. Some will, will conform. Whether we want to or think we are or not, we'll conform, and we'll sort of get on board with that, and we won't think anything of it. We'll just go along for the ride. But God says something different. God's commands for us as believers in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, He says, Be holy, because I am holy. God's standard is holiness. He also says in James 1.27, Remain unstained by the world. Don't let the world stain who you are as a believer. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says, don't love the things of the world. Don't chase after all that stuff. God's standard is that we live godly in an ungodly world, that we're not along for the ride. 
And so we live in this ungodly world just like Daniel found himself here in these first seven verses of this book. And over the next few weeks, as I said, we're going to look first at what it takes to live godly. The first one is discernment we'll look at today. Next week is commitment. And then the following week will be perspective. And those three principles, I believe, if you apply those both in your life and in the lives of those you influence, particularly your children, I think you'll see it that it's a little bit easier to live godly in an ungodly world. And so today we're talking about discernment. Now, on the back of your bulletin, you'll see a few things that you can follow along with. We're going to roll through these fairly quickly. I want to give you a definition, an idea of what discernment is, what it's not, and then how can we develop that in our lives. So look there with me. First of all, what is discernment? Here's what it is. It is the ability and skill of determining right from wrong, deciding between truth and error. Now, that sounds pretty simple, and really it is a simple definition, discernment. It's that ability and skill to determine right from wrong and deciding between truth and error. Another way to look at it would be it's thinking biblically. It's thinking biblically. It's having the Scripture in mind and thinking and seeing the world through that lens. That's what true discernment is all about. If you look back at the book of Daniel, we set the scene there in the first seven verses, and look at verse 8. Daniel, face to face, how am I going to live in this ungodly world? And he faces a situation in verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. He's face to face with, what am I going to do? Now understand that the king's food and drink were not prepared in the way that, that God had laid out in the books of the law that the Israelites were to do things. And so Daniel knew this, knew that the food was unclean, it was prepared the wrong way, was not pleasing to God, according to what God had said. And he says, I'm not going to defile myself in that way. And he looks for a way to get out of that sort of defilement, that sin it would have been for him. He determined that this was a right and wrong issue, according to the Scripture. Not just on a hunch or just what he felt, but according to the Scripture. And he used discernment. You may say, well, what in the world is the big deal about the food laws? I read Leviticus a couple of weeks ago. Good grief. It just seems like God was just sort of making stuff up on the fly. Well, don't eat this. You can eat this, but not this. The, the main point behind all that stuff is, you know what? Here's what God says, so do it. You may not understand it all. Daniel may not have agreed with all the food laws. Who knows? Maybe he thought the king's food was really great. I'll just eat that. But he knew. God had said, don't do this or do this. And he was bent on following that and not defiling himself. It's difficult in our world to have discernment. And culture makes it extremely difficult because we have labeled what's wrong right. We have called abortion a matter of choice. We have called homosexuality an alternate lifestyle. We have called sin a mistake when God says he despises sin, that it breaks him and he hates it. We have labeled what is wrong right. And many of us in here, even though we are believers in Jesus, have bought those lies. Those and many others. And it's difficult now because we have such a blurring of moral lines in our country. And if you come out and say any of the statements I just said, you're labeled as intolerant. And if that's the case, then so be it. I will stand with the Scripture in being intolerant if need be. 
but I will not compromise on what God says. The problem is our world does not support that sort of belief and that sort of statement. And if you try to live those things out in your workplace and in your school, the world will not support that. In fact, they'll label you intolerant and bigoted. And they'll tell you that you just need to open your mind a little bit and understand the world in 2010. And God says, no, 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 no. There's a right and there's a wrong. And you need to know the difference between what's true and what is error. And even what's half-truth. And so it's discernment that helps us do that. In the obvious things, the big things, and in the subtle things of life. Discernment is of the utmost importance because if not, you will live a very compromising lifestyle. If you are not a discerning person, can't tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong, you will compromise on most everything. And it will leave you subject to all sorts of teaching. And you'll be blown back and forth. Well, I heard this. What, do I, what am I supposed to believe? And I heard this over here from this person. And, well, I'm not sure about this. And you'll be blown back and forth because of a lack of discernment. And it will result in an unbiblical mindset and an unbiblical way of life. And the truth is, it's on this point of discernment that many Christians will fail. They'll fall flat on their faces. Really, it's ultimately a choice between two systems, two very opposed systems. It's God's system, and then it's everything else. Understand the Scripture makes it very clear. Psalm chapter 1, you'll see those systems described. Maybe you want to write down that reference and look at it. Psalm chapter 1 says this, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. There's one system, the world system, foolishness, doing whatever you want, whatever feels good in the moment, not worrying about the consequences. Verse 2, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And then here are the results. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. There are two different systems. Understand that everything we experience in life is either going to be done God's way or some other way. The Bible makes it clear that we are responsible as Christians to do it and to think and to act and live God's way. There's no middle ground in all of those things. It applies to every single stage of life. You're not off the hook, young people, because, well, maybe I'll get serious about that when I grow up. You're not off the hook. You're fully responsible for the way you think and the way you act. And you cannot blame it on circumstances or on your friends or just on, well, that's not popular in my school or I, I don't know how to do that. You cannot blame it on those things. You are responsible as a young person to live godly in an ungodly world. Parents, grandparents, you're not off the hook simply because you're not in that stage of what you might think is peer pressure and, oh, there's all this pressure for me to live a different way. We still are called at every stage of life and every area of life to live according to God's system, not according to anything else. There must be a difference between what we think, do, and our convictions and those of the world. The results of discernment. You live a life that discerns between right and wrong, between truth and error, are referenced there in Psalm 1. 
There are blessings that come with doing life God's way, and there are certain and inevitable and eternal consequences for those who reject God, reject Jesus Christ, and do their own thing. Also, you'll see the results of Daniel's discernment. Look with me in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 1. You see sort of the rest of the story here. God granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, this official said, My lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. Verse 11. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food, and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and, and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Verse 17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. God blesses those who live with discernment, who think biblically, and will do what God says. You see it in the Scripture over and over and over again. He blesses those things. They get His approval, His stamp on their lives to say, yes, you are doing it the right way. He blesses faithfulness and obedience to His standards. And as Psalm 1 said, all other ways of life will one day be blown away. There is God's way. There is everything else. That's what discernment is, the ability to think biblically, to discern, to determine right from wrong, truth from error. I'll tell you what it's not. You say, okay, well, all right, how do, I, how do I know? It's not a gut feeling. It's not a gut feeling. I was listening to a sermon this week by a great preacher. His name is John MacArthur. And he referenced a sermon that he had heard. Where a guy said, listen, if you, if you want to know if you're doing what's right or what's wrong, just you'll experience an upper abdominal sensation. And it will be painful if you're not doing something right. That will be what it is. But if you're, if you're doing the right thing, you'll have this really warm feeling inside. What in the world does that mean? Maybe you just have indigestion. How do you know? Uh, seriously, this is what some people will teach you. It's sort of a gut feeling. You, well, you'll just know. The Bible's really different than that. The Bible doesn't say go on your gut feeling. And also, discernment is not following your heart. I, I, I love this one. People will tell you, and I, I see on the Internet, on, on a site called Facebook, a lot of times our, our young people, not anybody particularly in here, but just young people say, I'm struggling with a decision. What should I do? The advice is, well, just follow your heart. That doesn't even make sense. Just follow your heart. That's what they tell folks. And that's what our world will teach us. Just follow your heart. You realize in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the Bible says the heart is deceitful above everything else. That at our core, our hearts are messed up. We are 
messed up, the Bible says, depraved on the inside. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I know over in 2 Corinthians it says that all those who are in Christ are a brand new creation. I've got a brand new heart. Let me tell you, Satan took up residence inside of your mind and your heart and in this world and has influenced you for a long time. Don't think that just because you are a Christian that you don't still battle those influences. There's a battle for your mind and your heart for as long as you live. And if you are bent on following your heart, the Bible makes it very clear, you're going to be led astray real quick. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful. It has to be led. It has to be changed from the inside out. And so it's not a gut feeling. It's not following your heart. What if Daniel had followed his heart? And he looked and said, wait a minute, the path of least resistance here to get really to where I want to be, a position of influence, boy, God could use me there, couldn't he? It's just to go along with the flow a little bit. That's what my heart really feels like I ought to do. It just seems like the right thing to do in this situation. The book probably would have never been written or would have ended right there because God would have been done with them. They refused to follow their heart. Instead, they looked for something objective. They didn't chase the allure of position and the king's court and all of that. They led their own hearts by following the Scripture, not by some internal feeling or a hunch. There's nothing more frustrating, is there, than trying to figure out hunches and signs from God and, well, God put something, make me feel something. I mean, that's hard. I don't really think God wants us to operate like that in all of our decisions. Well, just kind of wait for some upper abdominal sensation, and you'll know. I just... Or follow your heart. It's going to lead you astray. We need something besides our own broken and sinful hearts to lead us. And so discernment does not come through those things. Next question, they won't be okay. It's not that. How do I get it? If I'm going to live godly in an ungodly world, I've got to know the difference between right and wrong. That affects every decision I make. So if I'm going to do that, I need discernment. If I'm going to have discernment, how do I get that? Let me give you some stuff here to do, some steps to take, some principles to abide by, and it will close. How do you develop it? First thing is this, desire it. Desire it. The truth is many of us don't have much discernment because we don't want it. How badly do you want to be able to know right from wrong and to live godly in this ungodly world? Proverbs chapter 2, right down the reference, it says this, My son... If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely, hear the desire here, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Do you see what the writer of the proverb here is saying? You have to want it. You're not going to get discernment just by hanging out in church. That's great, but that's only a step. You're not going to get discernment by just waiting for God just to shower it on you. It's got to be desired. The writer here says, like silver. Well, we desire a lot of things. The truth is, if we're writing some of the Proverbs, we may not be able to include seek discernment and wisdom like silver. Well, Maybe seek discernment and wisdom. Boy, that silver is pretty nice. Maybe you ought to go with that. And then maybe use discernment and wisdom to get a little bit more silver. Maybe that's the way that we should operate. But the truth is, the Bible says seek, desire, go after. Let nothing stand in the way of you getting discernment, knowing right from wrong. 
problem is we seldom think about things. To be honest with you, a lot of times I have set my desires on different things. Discernment not being at the top of the list. Wisdom not being near the top at all. We get lost in everything else. And Satan has us deceived into thinking that the pursuits of this world are really what we should go after. So I ask you, how badly do you want to live godly? How badly do you want to please the Lord? How badly do you want discernment? Second thing is this, pray for it. Starts with desire. Lord, I want to know more. God, help me. I'm going to pursue wisdom and discernment. Praying for it. James chapter 1, verse 5. Maybe some of you know this reference. It says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. It doesn't say go and talk to all of your friends and see what they think. And read a couple of really good self-help books on knowing what to do in a tight spot. It says go ask God who gives freely to all. It says, don't doubt. Don't be wavering back and forth. Go boldly to God and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I want to live godly where I am in my school, in my job, in my home. Lord, help me. What should I do? And the Bible says, if you go to God in that way, God will give you wisdom. You'll have to ask your friends, though sometimes they can provide help. The first line of defense when we need something is wisdom. You're praying for it daily, consistently, whether you're a student, a parent, a worker, a boss, a, a TV watcher. God, help me to, to have discernment on what I allow to come into my brain. Help me. We pray for lots of things. The question then is how often do we pray for discernment, for right thinking? So desire it. Pray for it. And thirdly, follow the example of mature Christians. Follow the example of mature Christians. You're never too young and never too old to have a model in your life that you're going after. Does that mean that person is perfect and never makes a mistake? No, you know that. That's impossible. But someone who is mature in their faith, who operates with discernment. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says that he who walks with the wise grows wise, becomes wise. But a companion of fools, it says, suffers harm. You want to be a wise person? You want to know how to live the right way? You need to be around people who live that way. We need to stop taking our cues and being more interested in what's going on, maybe with the real housewives or, or finding our theology from Gray's Anatomy and different places like that and how we should live and take advice and all. And instead, instead surround ourselves with people who maybe aren't as famous aren't as rich, aren't as quote-unquote powerful or influential in our world. There are many people in this room that our young people are missing out on because we have our eyes on the wrong people. There are folks in this room whose names will never be known by anybody outside your family in this church, but you are walking with God and you are a wise person, and our young people would be smart and would be wise to latch on to one of those people and say, you know what, teach me how to live. I'm going to pay attention to what you do. You seem to have it together when it comes to the things of God. And there's some folks in this room that you've sold yourself short. And you say, what do I have to say? What do I have to, to give to younger people or to someone who might need a model to follow? And some of us need to step up and say, you know what? I'm going to be an influencer in this person's life and just pick one person. Challenge some of our folks who have been walking with God for a long time. Maybe you're in that 
latter third of life and you're retired and maybe you've got some discretionary time, you just identify one of our younger people in this church and say, I'm going to pray for that person and I'm going to target them, not to berate them or to mess with them, but I'm going to make sure that they know somebody is praying for them and cares for them and loves them and is going to be an example for them. Maybe there's a person like that in here. Follow the example of mature Christians. And then finally and most importantly, study the Scripture. Study the Scripture. Daniel, in verse 8, would not defile himself with the king's food. Why? Because he knew what the Scripture said. He didn't have to wait for a hunch or a gut feeling or an upper abdominal sensation. He knew, no, 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 no. The Bible says something different. It has to be our guide. It sets itself up as all-sufficient for all the wisdom and knowledge we need for how to live. And we have to, as Christians, study the Word of God, and as a result, learn the Word of God, understand godly principles, and say, this is my standard, and anything in my life that does not line up with this is not going to be done. I will stop it. I will avoid it. I will refuse it. I will not go down that path if it does not line up with Scripture. It has to be our guide, an objective guide. Well, we know right from wrong. And the problem is, many of us, as Christians, are biblically illiterate. We may know Jesus, but we have not fortified ourselves with the Scripture enough to not be blown back and forth by just the latest teaching or by the most popular thing out there. The truth is that when someone else comes along who claims to know the will of God for your life, if you don't know the Scripture, you're likely to follow them. They may lead you down a path that is right, and they lead you down a path that often is wrong. You leave yourself at the mercy of someone else if you don't know the Scripture. The Bible makes it very clear that though we need to be in church and we need to listen to the proclamation of God's Word, that I am not the person who stands before God on your behalf. You must go to Him individually and study the Scripture So I ask you, do you read the Scripture every day? Do you read it? And not just devotionally trying to get a warm fuzzy, but do you read it? And then when there are passages you don't understand, do you dig a little deeper? Do you try to figure out, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand that part. I wonder what God means by that. And then you dig a little deeper. That's how you figure out what God wants you to do. How much Scripture do you have memorized at your disposal when you run into that ungodly world? Jesus responded to temptation with three passages of Scripture. Not with a hunch, not with a gut feeling or following his heart, but with Scripture he responded to an ungodly world. You cannot live godly in an ungodly world if you don't know how. And the only way to know how is found in the Bible. And so I challenge you, study, learn, memorize, live by the Scripture. So living godly in an ungodly world begins with discernment. That's where it begins. And as I stated before, and as you well know, we live in a very ungodly world. The truth is that one day God will punish sin, and He will banish for all eternity those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ and are caught up in what the Bible says there in Psalm 1, in that ungodly, unrighteous lifestyle. 
God will pour out his wrath and destroy sin. The Bible makes that very clear. You say, well, wait a minute. God's a God of love. Yes, he is. And because of his great love and grace and mercy, made a way for us to be saved from that wrath. And the only way that happens is through the grace of God, demonstrated in the love of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, and we respond to that grace in simple faith. There is no other way, the Bible says, that we can be saved except through Jesus Christ. That's it. You can be the greatest person in the world, but if you have not placed your faith and given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says no matter how good you are, no matter how many great things you do, that you will one day depart from God for all eternity and spend it in hell. Not because of God's wrath, but because of His justice towards sin. He will not tolerate it. Jesus gives you the way to be forgiven, to have a brand new life. And so I challenge you, remember the words of the familiar scripture, John 3.16. God loved the world, it says, in this way. Here's how He loved the world. That He gave His only Son as a sacrifice. And whoever will believe, place their faith in Him, they'll receive eternal life. They'll not die. They'll not be banished from God. They'll receive eternal life. And so I pray, maybe for some of you, just stop putting that off. Quit putting off that decision to give your life to the Lord and maybe waiting for a different time. Or maybe quit putting off that decision to be obedient to the Lord and, and being baptized and publicly saying, you know what, I am a Christian and I, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Or maybe to join the church today as your, as your church home. And once you've received, obviously, that free gift of salvation, then it's time to live out our love for God by living godly in an ungodly world. That starts with discernment. Some of us today need to confess our lack of discernment and then confess maybe our mediocre living. Turn to God. Desire it. Pray for it. Follow the example of mature Christians. And this week, begin studying the Scripture. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, today we confess to you our lack of discernment that has led us away from godly living and to following just the pattern of this world. So, Lord, we confess our mediocre living. We confess our half-hearted attempts to follow you. Lord, we know that you did not spare even your own son. You went all the way for us. You demonstrated your love. So, Lord, today we call out to you, telling you we love you, and we repent, and we turn around. Lord, we desire discernment. We pray for it. We ask you that you would help us to know how to live godly. We want to follow those mature Christian examples. And God, ultimately, we want to be so filled with your scripture that when we encounter that ungodly world, we don't have to wait for a hunch or for what our heart says, but we'll know what your word says and we'll operate accordingly. Lord, help us today. For those who are struggling, for those who are sitting on the fence with you, Lord, I pray you'd call them to a deeper walk with you. For those who need to make a commitment to you for the first time, I pray you give them boldness, humility in the midst of that, and courage, Lord, to say, I need you, Jesus, in my life. Thank you for this church, for the ministry of it. Lord, we thank you for the discernment that you can give us to live godly in an ungodly world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.